Welcome to podcast number 23, and finding the missing piece, P-E-A-C-E, by Chris Duffy Wenzel. This is her beautiful new, brand new book that has just been launched yesterday. And Chris is here with me in KAZM 780 AM radio station here in West Sedona. Welcome, Chris. This is an honor. It's Mother's Day month, and this is all about finding your birth mother. So welcome. Very happy to know you. This book took me from the the living room to the bedroom to the bathroom. I'd never put the book down. For the last week, it was the most wonderful, loving, heartfelt detective story I think that I've ever read, and I cannot wait to share it with you, the public, and the whole family that you are going to be gathering as far as all other human beings who went on this sacred journey, this sacred path to find your birth mother. Take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you, Colleen. I'm just delighted to be here. It's truly an honor. And um, it's been an interesting journey. It's It started two years ago, um, the writing and, and the editing and... It actually, the ebook released on Mother's Day, which was not planned. It's nothing that I orchestrated, but clearly the ancestors wanted it out on Mother's Day. So quite an honor. And I'm so excited to have this book released to the world now. And it is Happy Mother's Day, post-Mother's Day, but Happy Mother's Day. We consider now the entire month of May, Mother's Day. And that's <laughs> we need that for our planet Mother Earth. And if this just could not have come at a better time. Yes. So <laughs> tell us about the beginning of the story. Uh, well, um, I knew I was adopted from a very young age, three years old, and my parents that raised me did a beautiful job making me feel special. And they said, you know, everybody else just gets what they get. We actually picked you. And honestly, that carried me through (laughs) most of my younger years until all of a sudden in, you know, science class, everybody's going around the room talking about their ancestry and sharing their stories of their grandparents. And I froze and realized I had no idea what my nationality was, what my stories truly were. And it seems hard to believe that it would take that long. I think I was in eighth grade. And, of course, the discussion around the dinner table was quite interesting, as you can imagine, when I went home and said, I need more. Like, who am I? Um, so I started looking for my birth mother when I turned 18. And, honestly, the drive for that was actually medical history. You know, I was a scientist. I knew I was going to spend my career in science. And the fellow that I was pretty sure I was going to marry at the time had cystic fibrosis in his family, cousins that had passed away. So it was pretty serious and strong in his in his line. And I thought, you know, I, I need to know, do, am I a carrier? I don't want to, you know, bring children in the world that are going to really suffer. So that became the motivation. And so I went when I turned 18, didn't tell any of the family that raised me because they went through hell to get me. And I didn't want them to ever think that they weren't enough and that I wasn't appreciative of, you know, what they had done for me, giving me such a beautiful life. 
Um, what part of the United States were you in? Um, so I was adopted in New Jersey and so spent um, most of my life there until after college. Yeah. And, you know, subsequently, as you know, I found more and more pieces about my mother. Um, she she lived 45 minutes south of where I grew up. Your birth mother. Did. My birth mother. Yes. Yes. So um and, and and I subsequently also found out that she used to go to the same beach um, down the shore. We call it you know, Wildwood Beach, as the beach that I went to as a as a child. And I, oh my gosh, we could have been on the beach at I the know. same time and passed each other. Footprints in the sand, Foot, right? Yes, footprints yes. in the sand for sure. Um, you know, so what I found out is the social workers, unfortunately, as much as they want to help you. You know, New Jersey um, is a sealed adoption state, which means the records are locked down. You don't have access to them. And the family that um, adopted me had very little information. You know, my mom was 17 and in high school. That was pretty much all all we knew. Um, is that still the case now for New Jersey, the state of New Jersey? You know, I looked it up recently, and they have some caveat that depending on the years that you were born, um, you might be able to access the information easier. Um, but when, you know, up until 10 years ago, it was completely sealed. And I was shocked to find out that, you know, even if the birth mothers, you know, pass away, those files are still not open, which that really surprised the heck out of me. And you would think at some point <laughs> they get, they hand them over. Um, you know, so it was an interesting journey because, um, I couldn't find any medical information. It wasn't provided, you know, when I was 18 because, you know, as the social worker said, you know, we're not a detective agency. We don't go back and keep track of these mothers. How could we? Um, so every few years I would, I would go back and meanwhile, you know, my life, Proceeded, and um, you know, I did go into science and continued. You know, every every five or eight years, try again. And I had read this article that said, you know, keep track of every piece of information the social workers give you, because it's really like a puzzle. You might, at some point in your life, have enough information where you can actually pull the pieces together and find out, you know, who your family is. Um, and so that's what I did <laughs> for most of my life. And I was, you know, I think because I knew I was adopted from a young age, it didn't define me. You know, I, um, I just kind of moved on with my, with my life. Although, you know, looking back, I really, um, shrouded my heart, I would say. You know, I wasn't great at dealing with my emotions. Um, in my twenties, I ended up with a, a pretty raging eating disorder. Um, and until I sought recovery, you know, and counseling and reading books that helped me, I never connected that I had emotions that I just didn't think I could face. They were just a little bigger than I thought I could handle. And um, so but I blocked neither, them. Neither did you blame, you see. But So mm. when you were adopted, uh, were you a baby or a young toddler? Or? So just um, I was born in June and I was adopted in um, the end of August. So adopted as an infant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a little one. But your journey, such a sacred path and journey for to find your, your birth mother, especially, mm-hmm. and, and father and family without without blame. Yeah, you know, and I think because, you know, what my parents that raised me did know is that she was 17. And, you know, it was a huge sacrifice for her, obviously, to give up her child. And, you know, she want, she did that, you know, she wanted me to have a better life than she was going to be able to give me. And I think that I felt that in my heart, that that was absolutely the truth. So what evolved as I was old enough to control things like my birthday. I never celebrated my birthday. It was a very private affair. You know, um, when I was working, the people around me were like, don't, don't surprise Chris with a cake. Like, like just like it's her birthday, but just, you know, be quiet about it. And it was because I always thought of her, like that was her day. And I would spend the day really honoring her and sending her blessings and wondering how she was doing. Cause I, imagined that it was a really, really tough day. Um, so I, I really thank my family that raised me for sort of setting that course for me because I never had any 
um, overt feelings, obviously, about rejection. What I did discover in my healing journey is I had some some pretty big issues around abandonment and rejection. You know, I was the model student. I was the model employee. You know, I always exceeded expectations. And in in all honesty, it wasn't until I started my journey after getting diagnosed with cancer that I started to really unravel these pieces that had really impacted my life in ways that I didn't realize until I had to really look at all parts of my life, you know, the physical part that, you know, was happening, the emotional and the spiritual pieces. And, um, you know, in, in my book, as I was writing, this line came to me that just shocked the heck out of me. I remember just kind of sitting back and going, whoa, that's, that's something I hadn't thought of before. And it was um, that the cancer healed me. And it was really because of the journey that it that it set me on. Um, you know, so you know, my career was thriving. I had a, a really fantastic um, position at a medical device company, and then in my early fifties, um, I had a very unexpected diagnosis, which was uterine cancer. You know, and at that point, I had a choice to make, right? And I went to one of the best surgeons in Boston because that's where we were living at the time. And the tradition, the way that you treat that um, type of cancer is, you know, full hysterectomy, including ovaries. And, um, you know, I because of my medical background, I had enough in my mind to know what questions to ask. And, you know, I was just through menopause. And I said, you know, I'm sure the cells in my uterus are going through a lot of changes. It's only stage one. You know, are we sure... You know, why do we think it's going to keep going? It could regress as much as it sort of arrived. And the the surgeon said to me, well, why would you even risk that? Like, this is just, this is the most common surgery I do in women your age. And that was the flag. That was the voice that went, that's interesting. And I remember even being able to articulate a question back to her. And I And I said, well, is it possible that, you're over-treating, you know, and I, I don't even know where that came from. But I, you know, I left and basically said, well, I'll get back to you. <laughs> I need to think about this. And, um, and Chris, um, mm. let me just say, let me ask you, when you say we were living in Boston at the time, who who was who's Oh, we? yeah. Yeah. So my husband, Dave, okay. and I, who I met in high school, and uh, we got married after college, and we're still together. He's my best friend. Um, on the journey with me. <laughs> and that's how many years now? Ah, uh, it'll be 43 years at the end of this month. So May is a big month for us. <laughs> of course it is. That's so, that's so fantastic. <laughs> All right. So now you're in Boston with Dave mm-hmm. and you've gotten this diagnosis and what happens next? Yep. Yep. So on the drive home, I started to feel very unsettled about which direction to go and Again, you know, people might be like, how could you not first think about being adopted? But I didn't. And all of a sudden, what rose up was, I don't even know my medical history. How can I proceed with this surgery not knowing, you know, is there uterine cancer, breast cancer, you know, in, in my maternal line particularly? And, um, and then, you know, fear and doubt start to creep in. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not the surgeon. She's the surgeon. She knows more than I do. So... And this would have been in um, October of 2009. So I decided, you know what, I just need to push everything away, focus on just getting this cancer handled. And so I scheduled the, the surgery over Christmas. I was a really busy person, you know, just do whatever the holidays. And what I did not count on was the fact that I had a meditation and a mindfulness practice that I have been on a journey probably for the last 20 or so years. And I was in a yoga class um, two weeks before the surgery in the final resting pose in Shavasana where you're just very quiet. And this voice, and I'm telling you, Colleen, it was almost like screaming. I opened my eyes to see who in the yoga studio was causing a ruckus. Mm-hmm. No one was. It was my internal voice who said, um, you know, you need to pause, you need to slow down, you need to ask more questions, you need to do research. What other options are there? And I was really shaken. I got to the car 
<laughs> I was like, okay, really? I'm, I'm two weeks away from this surgery. Where is this coming from? And, um, that's so great. It really was. So that was the, it was like somebody just hit the giant pause button. And I'm eternally grateful to that because I, I, I don't know what I would have done if the surgery had happened, but my guess is I would have just gone back to work. I wouldn't have thought of anything like just, you know, focus on my career and the things that I love to do and not turn the, you know, the light back on myself. And what ended up happening is, I started looking at integrated healing. What did that mean? You know, who did that? You know, did I have access to people that looked at the whole being? And what what year was this? So this was, um, now it's 2010. And interestingly enough, my husband had had an incredible healing with arthritis um, through a naturopath that was um, in our area. And he's a, a famous naturopath who wrote the book Eating for Your Blood Type. Oh, yes. And he happened to retire in the seacoast town where we lived. And um, I got to see Dave's arthritis literally reverse itself, you know, from, you know, swollen knuckles and joints to absolutely nothing. And he's, you know, 30 years out now and moving stones and building walls at, you know, 66. So, you know, I had an experience with something that defied, you know, the, the rheumatologists were basically, you need to be on this medication for the rest of your life. Well, through dietary changes and all kinds of things that the naturopaths, you know, focus on from a healing modality, it, it just left. So, and I remember thinking, okay, well, that was arthritis. This is cancer. Like, do I trust this process with cancer? <laughs> and, um, uh, as it ended up, I did and found some incredible healers um, that really looked at mind, body, spirit. And what was, you know, one of the recommendations that um, my, one of my naturopaths recommended was read um, Dr. Christiane Northrup's book, you know, Women's Wisdom, you know, Women's Bodies, Women's Win- Wisdom, and looked up second chakra, because that's where the uterus is, and it says unresolved grief, sadness, and loss. And I honestly read it and just kind of poo-pooed it and thought, well, you know, who by the time they're 50 hasn't had grief, sadness, and loss in their life, for right. Pete's sake. And, um, and that was it. And I, but I kept, you know, working. I did sound healing, which quite honestly was truly incredible and started to look at all aspects of my life and recognizing what was depleting my energy, what was giving me energy and started to make those, those life changes. But you did not automatically think about being adopted or what happened in the, in your early stages or, or your birth because of that second yeah. chakra that, you know, <laughs> it did, that no, gut, that gut. <laughs> no, what did come up was, um, I needed to know my medical history. So I did call the adoption agency and say, I've got this diagnosis. They're recommending surgery. I need to find out information about my mother. Um, and then I just continued to, to work the medical treatment plan that we had, you know, mapped out. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, it was months and months before I heard back from the adoption agency. And, you know, it was at the point where I got the phone call telling me about my mother that I got very much in touch with how much grief, sadness, and loss I had buried inside. And, um, and I knew from that moment forward that the healing, that there was something truly mm, spiritual guiding me, really leading me through a path that all I needed to do was to follow it. Um, and I started to have a very strong inner knowing that the cancer was going to leave and that part of why it had even arisen was this was about finding finding my roots, finding my pieces, finding family, healing an ancestral lineage that I didn't I didn't know. And, you know, I when I was younger, I had this very strong affinity for the Native American culture. I mean, I was in grade school writing letters to the government about the inhumane treatment of the, our Native Americans. And the family that raised me was like, what is wrong with you? And, um, you know, and to, you know, discover years later, you know, as a result of this cancer diagnosis, that not only did I have Native American ancestry, I actually was able to discover what it was, 
which was a, a dream come true. And this was at the end of your, closer to the end of your detective story. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. When you heard that voice uh, telling you about there are other options or how are you considering any other options? You were uh, in a I mean, yoga practice and at a very relaxed state of mind, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Right. So this is also part of uh, my own healing practice about, you know, uh, all this healing comes from within when you are at peace with yourself. And I think this is so important for you to have written this book now, especially this world that this adoption world and finding the missing pieces, you know, as far as your, the DNA and, the, and all of that is so very, very important, uh, today and that we find these missing pieces and it has to come through a peaceful presence, a peaceful state of mind or heart. This is how, uh, things are moved along, right? Mm-hmm. On your path. The moment that you let it go, or, or say, okay, you take it as far as you can go, and then, um, then maybe it's not supposed to be. Your entire journey, your entire book speaks to this, mm. and you do it so very well, so colorfully, and just so magically. And the reader is just goes along with everything that you are feeling without being buried, mm. without being, without giving up, but giving up. <laughs> That's kind of interesting, right? So did you want to hear that voice again because it came from outside of you? Or what What did you want to, how did you want to hear that voice again? Or uh, that, uh, <laughs> Well, that is such a great point. Um, you know, I had a meditation practice. However, I really have come to realize why it's called a practice because it wasn't something that I was doing every day, even yoga. In fact, my the team of people that I had the honor of working with, they they would say, like, you haven't really done any yoga for a while, have you? I'm like, oh, my. It's really obvious. Um, you know, so finding that the silence and the stillness was not something that came easy for me. And that was another uh, piece that really arose from this journey is I need to make that a regular part of my life. And what I discovered as I did, I did that more and more regularly because it's a skill and a practice like anything else is my intuition or my ability to hear my inner wisdom and trust it, that's probably the big word, is trust, um, just got stronger and stronger. And, you know, I remember going to bed one night and saying, okay, like I haven't heard back from the adoption agency. I have been trying for decades to find out who my mother is, um, you know, with closed doors. So, you know, how am I going to do this differently and I literally woke up the next morning with this very clear message, not unlike what happened on the yoga mat, you know, which was use unconventional methods. And I was like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> so I really, were, I was getting pieces of clues that then I needed to sit with and really trust my inner wisdom. And let me tell you, as a very fast-paced corporate woman, that is not easy for me. <laughs> so I really had to work at it. Um, right. But the unconventional paths that started opening up were, for me, truly crazy because I'm a scientist by training. You know, I'm an immunovirologist. I trust things I can see under a microscope. And all of a sudden, I'm getting messages about, you know, contacting a medical intuitive. You know, psychics can help you. What about mediums? You know, um, past life regression came up at one point. And I didn't have access to any of these people. It wasn't like, you know, people that I knew. But as soon as I really got clarity and decided, okay, that sounds like a path I should explore, the resource showed up. And sometimes within hours. And it, it really started to teach me the incredible value of stillness and silence and meditation and finding my own unique path, you know, and I, I really realized in sharing my story and talking with people that everybody's path is so unique. You know, what's, you know, my path took a totally unexpected turn in terms of my treatment options. Other people, you know, decide something else and that's exactly the right path for them. You know, but I think for me, what I hope people get out of the book is find your path, like give yourself the space to even know you have a path because I almost missed mine. I mean, honestly, I had my head down, get this cancer out of me. Let me go back to my work and, you know, get on with my life. And 
you know, this journey <laughs> truly is my life and was my life. And, you know, that's part of the, the cancer creating, you know, being the catalyst, you know, for profound life changes. Life and death situations, right? Exactly. Right. So you were straddling both worlds, the spirituality and the science world, and then you went to India. Mm. And I just really laughed out loud at some of the, <laughs> uh, some of the things that you, that you wrote. But there, I was right there with you in tent number one or tent number two, you know, when you, this eye clinic, you know, that, that, um, you had volunteered for and, and your husband. I mean, some of the things that you have put in the book as far as your, both, both of you volunteering for the things that you did. I mean, I just, you know, we just, I just want to go there. I want to do the same thing. I want to follow, you know, your path, but I'm glad that you said what you said. Talk about India and, uh, talk about your time there and also, especially about when you're talking about space and time to find the space and the time, that divine space, when you met uh, this incredible doctor mm. um, that had all of these uh, people around him because they didn't line up too, too well, <laughs> you know, which is fine, you know, whatever, but also that other uh, piece about uh, this young woman who took her father hundreds of miles mm. and then uh, the coins that were left there and things like that. That this, And then this doctor was able to concentrate solely on that being in front of him, mm-hmm. even though all the others were crowded around. That to me <laughs> seemed like that. You're, that's what you're talking about, divine space, right? Because it's important for us now to know this now with all this technology and we can't uh, incorporate it and we get entangled with it and we can't shift it. So mm-hmm. we'll get back to that in a minute, but talk... Talk about that story, mm. those two stories. Yes. Yeah. Well, I have to take a, just a small detour, hopefully, yep. just yes. a short one. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so I was raised in a Catholic home, and so Catholic grade school, high school, and um, I've been told, was told by my mom that raised me that I was probably about eight years old when she got the phone call that I challenged the priest during religion class because... All right then. All right. Um, you know, because the message was, you know, um, the little children in China, you know, um, who don't believe, you know, what we believe in the Catholic Church are, you know, pretty much going to hell. You know, and this is, you know, 1960s. Right. And I was, I was flabbergasted. It's like, well, that's not the God that I understand. How, how can that be? So that started to shape my... Um, wanting to know more, like wanting to find God, like who is God? What is God? This, this, all these rules, and I can't talk to the Jewish kids in the synagogue across from the church, and I can't talk to the Protestant kids because they don't believe the same things. None of that made sense to me. Um, and fortunately for me, my husband shared the same thoughts. So we spent, you know, a lot of our 20s and 30s in, you know, looking for God, you know, which is what led us to working in the inner city in Chicago when we moved to Chicago and working with teenagers at the drop-in center. Um, and it started to make sense to us in terms of, you know, the paths are so, you know, the world is not black and white. It is like a lot of shades of gray. And, um, and to be honest with you, we put our heart and souls into into every weekend running a drop-in center for kids. And it was the more we got involved, the more we saw that, that the kids needed help. I mean, they were raised by a, a mom living in a teeny apartment and, you know, with the mom had multiple jobs. And I remember befriending one of these young teenage boys who was brilliant. And I asked him where he was going to college. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know if I'm going to eat tomorrow. Like, uh, college... You know, and, right. and I burnt out. I, I, there was this point at which I, I literally thought I had failed because we tried to do so much for the kids and they just needed so much. So we left Chicago because my mom back east, um, was ill and, um, we left sort of unfinished in terms of, you know, what we were really truly looking for. Um, we'd sort of cracked the surface. And um, we became very intrigued with Eastern spirituality and mainly because of the oneness. We really appreciated the, the whole concept that we're all integrally connected and this, you know, collective consciousness and, um, you know, what happens to one of us happens to all of us. And it was like, oh, we wanted to know more. So that's how we got to India is a friend introduced us to a path called City Yoga, 
um, that just made a lot of sense to us from an, an inclusivity perspective. And so we had an, uh, an opportunity to volunteer in India. And this was not that long after leaving Chicago um, and feeling like a failure. And um, I just wanted to be where the action was, of course. So we got to India and the I camp, which was literally a converted ice uh, rice paddy field. Uh, and hundreds and hundreds of volunteers from all over the world would come because the people that lived in the villages a couple hours outside of Mumbai had no access to medical care other than a, a medical bus that would go around to the villages. But um, cataracts were just rampant. So this was, uh, you know, late 1990s, 2000. Um, and because they lived on the farms, they know that's how they made their living. If one family member got was blind, it, it just affected the entire family unit. So um, there was an organization called Prasad, um, a philanthropic organization that every few years would put these massive eye camps together. And we had an incredible opportunity to go and support one year. And um, and part of the, you know, as Dave and I were going, it's like, okay, are we cut out for this volunteer stuff? Boy, Chicago was rough. I don't know if we can handle it. <laughs> but what was different about this time is that's when I got introduced to meditation and yoga and starting to understand, not really in- integrating it yet, but understanding um, what it means to be in the moment and be fully focused and present and not, you know, scattered and juggling a, a thousand things and never being fully present. Um, and so I had a chance to go out to the I camp and they expected about 5,000 people for the whole duration of the camp, which was several weeks. Oh my goodness. And wow. we had 5,000 in one day in the first, oh, no. in the first day. So it was, oh. it was, you know, we're riding in school buses and we get to the tents. There's massive tents that are all set up in this rice paddy field. And it looked a little bit like Disney World in terms of ropes and queuing and um, all these people in beautiful multicolored saris and little children guiding a family member because they had to have an escort. And in some cases, it had to be a child because they the family couldn't spare another adult to help them there. We found people that had walked 400 miles on in flip-flops, some barefoot, um, to get to the eye camp because they knew they would be taken care of. How did they learn about it 400 miles away? You know, that is a great question. Um, and that was, there wasn't a lot of internet back then. Just the word spread. The bus was going to villages. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was something that was planned years in advance. You know, so the, the oh, word got out. Um, but I was, uh, I was in, uh, tent one, which was where, um, we would do the screening. So, you know, find out if people needed glasses or, um, that did they need cataract? Did they need intervention? Did they did they have an eye infection? And um, I discovered that you know, of course, these folks that lived in the villages had not much experience <laughs> with lines and queuing and all of that stuff. And here I am, still trying to control things because that's what I do. And um, and I still remember like motioning for the for you know the patient to come forward and then turning around and there's like 50 people like right there. <laughs> it's like. I get it. They don't know what's going on. They're as curious as, as you know, I am about what's happening with them. Um, and so it was really an interesting learning opportunity for me to, can I give this over to the higher power? Because I was truly not in control. And, um, you know, I got better and better as the day went on. But um, here was getting to your question. So my husband came over. He was at the tent next to us. And there was a doctor from Canada. And now it's about five o'clock. We've been there since probably seven in the morning. And Dave came over and he said, you need to watch this. And just like in my tent where, you know, 50 people would come forward, that was happening in the tent next door. People didn't all of a sudden figure out the line queuing, right? Right, right. And, um, but what, um, what Dr. Paul did is he greeted the patients as they greeted us, which was hands folded in prayer and saying namaskar, which was the light in me honors the light in you. And he would focus on that patient like there was nothing else in the world. The only thing that mattered or existed was the person in front of him. And then he would take care of that patient and he would, you know, bow as he was concluded and then the next patient would come. And Dave just whispered to me, he's been doing that all day since seven o'clock this morning, hundreds of patients. And it was such a beautiful thing to witness. And I thought, I 
need to bring this back with me. There was so much in those moments of how people are treated with love and respect and compassion and how those attributes, those qualities completely override any differences in culture, religion, belief systems. You know, it was, you know, I, I think I could write a book about the lessons just in that experience. And, um, and to, to be present, so present with that, that person and yet n- knowing everything around you as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, being very, very aware. Yes, very aware. Awareness, yes. Yes, Compl- yeah. yes you, yeah, you totally nailed it. Um, and so then we were moved to the, um, the new assignment, and I was in the first tent where the cataract patients were being taken care of. So in that eye camp where we had 10,000 patients, we treated 1,000 people for cataracts. And, you know, and we treated people young in their 30s and, you know, diet, sunlight, lack of water, all of those factors contributing. And the, the story that was so incredible is these are people that literally have the clothes on their backs. And I went in one night, um, and, or the next morning and on the nurse's table, cause we, I was doing blood pressures and eye checks and things. Um, the patients had collected rupees, you know, Indian coins for the staff. <laughs> You're just, these are people that have, have nothing really. Right. I mean, they're right. just, they're existing and the generosity and the open heart, you know, so it was, you know, all of these lessons of, you know, you go there thinking, you know, I'm going to save the world, you know, I'm right. going to help all these people. And, you know, I really discovered that it was my heart that was expanded, my heart that was opened. I think they were healing something really deep inside of me. And the the last um, major piece that happened was we word spread through our tent that we had the youngest, um, one of the youngest patients. He was um, about 35. And um, his bandage was coming off at the, uh, in the afternoon. And those of us that worked in the tent were in- invited to be there when the doctor took his bandages off and we didn't know what was so special but um we were there and his daughter was with him and she was only about seven so she guided him there and the doctor removed the the bandage and we were all kneeling on the on the ground around him and you can imagine you know he he didn't know what to expect you know he had never experienced this before and he slowly opened his eyes and then he just looked at every one of us and then he looked down at his daughter and this incredible smile, transcendent smile. And then he looked at all of us and he said, today I have seen the face of God. And yes, how many he, years later? Brings me right, to tears. Right. And what we discovered is he had never seen his daughter's face. His cataracts, he had cataracts in both eyes. His cataracts had formed after um yeah, before she was born. So he was looking at her face, looking at our faces. It was all the same to him. <laughs> and um, it was a moment, you know, that obviously is, you know, and for me. all of you, your volunteers and staff and everyone to, to share that moment. And isn't this our natural DNA mm-hmm. for us divine human beings? Yes. If you remember that the 9-11 uh, attack in New York City, when all, all, Thousands of people lined up to give blood mm. because it's in our very nature to give, mm-hmm. you know. And so we have a lot to to give and then also to receive. So now you've received this incredible blessing mm. and shared it with, with everybody else. Now you've got all this peace in your heart and you and Deva are leaving India and coming back to the U.S. and then what? <laughs> <laughs> well, then, you know, you really look at the world in a totally different way. You know, every, I mean, even, you know, all of your possessions and things you took for granted, like running water, right. <laughs> warm water, light. Right. Um, yeah. So, and I think for me, it was, it was really the beginning of understanding how to, how to live a conscious, aware, you know, a life of awareness um, and, and to live in a space of, recognizing the light in you is the light in me. Um, and and again, it, it, for me, it's a practice. You know, there's times where I'm stressed and I'm short and, you know, that's, that goes out the window, you know, but it's always, I can always go back to it. And I think that's one of the things that I 
took away is the oneness and the the peace that's always inside. It's just a breath away. I just need to give myself the space to have it. Yes, there is a a quote uh, that um, love, compassion, and respect transcend religion, culture, and language. Oneness is our path back to peace, a place we never left. Finding the way back is as close as the next breath. And that was your last entry, mm. you know, in your journal as you were leaving India. Mm. It's on page 75, by the way. <laughs> Get the book. Okay. <laughs> All right. So now, now we're going back, coming back to the United States. You still have not found your birth mother. No. And so what happens then? <laughs> so I, now I'm, I'm, you know, on a new pathway, right, to, uh, to try to find her. And, um, you know, when I, started to look at those unconventional methods, right? Um, one of the things that happened was I went to a medical medium, which I, and actually say went to means on the phone, you know, so I never met this woman. She's on the phone and she, you know, proceeded to tell me that I was 25, 30 pounds overweight, that I needed to lose weight because the estrogen, extra estrogen was being stored in my fat cells and that that would save my life and that I would dance and I remember thinking, okay, this is insane. How does she even know this? And I don't dance. Um, but that was one of my first forays into, okay, that was sort of odd. But guess what? I actually went on vacation and a friend said, you know what? I'm going to this Zumba class. Do you want to come? I had no idea what Zumba was, never heard of it. And I went to the class and it's a, it's dancing, it's music, it's mu- world music and all kinds of salsa and, you know, Latin moves and you name it, hip hop. And I literally started crying. I was in tears and I heard my, my mind saying, okay, finally she gets it. Like she's treating her body like it's just holding the brain on, you know, it's just holding the head. Um, that there's something more. And, um, so I literally started dancing. I literally danced the weight off. And interestingly enough, when I did find information out about my birth mother, I discovered that that was one of the things they wrote about her, that she was 17, a good student, brown hair, brown eyes, and she loved to dance. How lovely. So I'm like, I inherited her, her little DNA dance moves. Um, but um, <laughs> how did it. you find her then? I mean, yeah, how pieces, did I find her? You kept the pieces from the I did. beginning. I, I did. I kept the pieces. And I had a uh, social worker that gave me probably more than she ever should have. She gave me the first and my mother's first and middle name. She told me that my mother lived somewhere on the Ohio Kentucky border. Um, I knew my mother was born or you know lived in New Jersey when I was born. So those are some pretty big pieces, right? Yes. Yes. Um, but when I got the phone call about that my mother had actually passed away. And then I was never going to get the files. This is the adoption agency. I, I was beyond devastated. I mean, I, I, you know, I spent most of my career in sales, medical device sales before I went into training and leadership development. And my husband likes to joke is I don't know the word no, you know, and, and I don't in sales. It's like not yet. You know, we don't have the right product for them, but I'll come back and see you again. You know, there's no no. And here I was with this complete wall, this complete block. And um, I I went to bed one night and laid down a, a very heartfelt prayer. I mean, it was truly a prayer of surrender. You know, like, I don't know what to do next. I've tried everything I know, again, in my controlling mind. And I woke up the next morning with this very clear message that said, call the adoption agency back and get the death date, your mother's death date. And I thought, okay. Interesting. Yep. I don't know what to do with it. Um, went to work, shared it with a friend who, she, you know, you always had those people in your life that are like your little guardian angels. Mary was that for me. And um, she goes, oh, yeah there's this thing called the Social Security Index site, and it keeps track of everybody that's died that has a Social Security number. Like, how in the world she would know that? She she was in marketing and had some big project that she had done years earlier. So here I was with my mother's, you know, first and middle name. Um, so I called the adoption agency back and said, you know, could you please send my mother's death date? 
And so three or four days later, it's actually on May 20th, 2010, at about 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you do not forget these things that change your life. Right. And um, they sent an email. And it was just like when I was younger. You know, they, they redact, they black out all the things that they don't want I you to I saw that see. in your book. I mean, yeah. how do you fill out medical questions yeah. or a questionnaire with all these blanks? Yeah, you can't. Mm-hmm. And um, But what they did is I had the flow. You know, blank, uh, died... Um, you know, September 19th, 2009, at midnight, home surrounded by, and then there were a bunch of blanks, buried in blank. So I had the flow. And um, so I called my husband. He's on speakerphone. I was in my office. And I went on the Social Security Index site and put in all the information, held my breath, and pushed enter. And the screen went black. And I just remember staring at it going, oh, my God, the, the, it's just crashed. I'm never going to get this information. Oh. And then it and then the information popped up, and there in front of me were columns, and I, I started to find the woman that had first and middle name, birth date that had to be around the age that she would have been, and there was Ohio, and the social worker had said Kentucky or Ohio. There was New Jersey State where the first Social Security card was issued. And um, so I had, all of a sudden I had a Social Security number, I had a birth date, a death date, and that allowed me to then get an obituary notice that matched exactly what the um, social workers, the adoption agency had sent me. Only this time, I had names. And I had the name of my mother's husband and um, seven siblings. And I didn't know if they were full siblings, half siblings, but seven siblings. And I can only tell you, you know, I hit print and carried this piece of paper around with my mother's information for months, you know, on the passenger side of my car. It was like my mom was sitting in the seat there, you know, under my pillow at night. It was my connection with her. And, um, but then also I sat back and went, well, now what do I do? I can't just like show up at these people's doorsteps. I, I have no idea what they know, what they don't know. I'm about to impact a whole family's life. So I, um, I just did a bunch of research and and truly talk about pausing and sitting with things. I really had to to decide like how do I what do I do next? Also because she also had seven other children. She had seven other seven children. Seven other children and you would have been the oldest, right? Yep, the oldest, exactly. And so then it became sort of interesting because everybody that I worked with and we had a we had a team of people that we interacted with and um and everybody was going through this journey with me, you know, because at this point, um, you know, I had, you know, I'm still not having the surgery. I'm still trying to get all these pieces. And and so they're getting worried, you know, because I haven't had the surgery yet, but I'm, you know, I'm monitoring things, making sure things haven't progressed. And so everybody had an opinion about what to do. You know, like, you should reach out to the oldest brother. You know, no, you should reach out to the to the youngest because he's the only one that's moved away from the family. And, you know, so it became a family affair of all the people that I worked with. So they're very excited about this book, actually. And, um, you know, and so finally, I literally wrote letters, same letter to all the kids. And um, in July, there's something called Guru Purnima. It's the full moon, in, the biggest full moon in, in July. And it's a time of honoring all your teachers and the sacredness of those teachers. And so um, I had letters with the pictures, and I put them on my little altar on Guru Purnima. And Dave and I both like said prayers over them, blessed them, and then he mailed them for me because I was too nervous. And it was the youngest brother that made the phone call two days later. And it was the phone call I'd been waiting for for my entire life. And I, I feel like the reader will <laughs> hold their breath as well when they read this part, <laughs> you know, about, about you making contact. And so you do go and see them and this whole story then begins to unfold even more about because you are now looking well, shoot, your mother has passed, mm-hmm. so you could not be with her. But then there's the green, the, the mean grandmother in there as well. <laughs> and, you know, there's so many stories about <laughs> your relatives that are, you know, that keep secrets and yeah. uh, don't come forth. And so much that is missed, you know, mm-hmm. by the child or uh, siblings and all of that. And all these secrets and all of this secrecy and all of this stuff that just does not help at all. I mean, that... 
I think we should be mature enough by now, by now, or really in our evolutionary process as divine human beings, that we don't need all these secrets. We don't. Mm. If we are going to be one, and we're all supposed to be one, or the gathering of one, where's the separation? Mm. Where's the secrets? So now you're going your divine sacred path, and you are... You've had your, you've had the surgery was successful. No, didn't no. have the surgery. Oh, you did not have a surgery. Did not have the surgery. And what was interesting is the day that, um, I received the phone call from the youngest brother was a day that I was going down for a major, um, check on how things were going, you know, cause I was doing the alternative healing for months. And as I was driving down to Boston after talking with Steve and getting a picture of my mother and finding out our roots and the family and everything that I was wanting to know since I was 18, right? Um, I, As I drove into the parking garage for the imaging center, I thought, it's going to be normal. Th- this is going to be normal. And I had been focusing on visualizing, you know, healthy cells. You know, I had been meditating on a positive outcome. I had a good friend who said, who had talked to me months earlier, and she said, you know what your problem is? She said it very lovingly. And I said, no, what is it? And she goes, you're focused on what you can't have. You're focusing on what the adoption agency won't give you. You are focused on the problem. You're not focused on the solution. Start visualizing. Start feeling like what you're looking to achieve is actually happening now. And I've subsequently learned that that, is, that actually works on the brain. The brain doesn't know if it's real or, or not. It's the act of experiencing it and putting that that positivity out there. And for me, it was, you know, the outcome was meant to be what it was for my path. And um, sure enough, that that appointment showed everything was normal. So it was an incredible gift and journey and, um, you know, something that I celebrated with all of the healers. It was a village of people that truly supported me. Um, but, you know, your comment, Colleen, about secrets, what I found out from my mother's husband, who's not my father, was it. she was never normal, um, a, a, you know, about the adoption. He didn't know when he married my mother about me at all. But years later, they were married probably 20-some years, she did tell him about me, which was a gift. So when I showed up with the letters, he didn't freak out. But he he shared with me that um, they would be celebrating Christmas or one of the children's birthdays, and he would look over at my mom, and she would look like she was on the verge of tears. She was depressed, and she would never tell him what had happened. Um, this went on for years, and she really kind of built a wall around herself um, to keep that secret in. And the only person that knew um, was her mother and my grandmother, who was the one that, you know, arranged everything. Um, they even kept it a secret from from my mother's father, my grandfather, because he was out at sea when I was born. He was kind of like a merchant marine. So it really put me in touch with the agony that these mothers faced, not just when they left the hospital and left their babies, but every time a new child was born. That first child, you know, my oldest brother, when he was born and everybody's congratulating her on her her child, her first child. Can you imagine what that must be like? I mean, I, it really put me in, in some deep places, realizing the pain that she carried and the shame and the, and the guilt and all of that, and to keep those secrets. And so when I wrote the book, um, I reached out to one of my sisters and said, you know, I'd really like to use mom's name, but I, I want permission. And I'd like, I'm going to start with you before I ask all the siblings, um, you know, would you read my book? And um, so, so sis read the book and um, she called me and she said, you're giving mom the voice that she never had. And I, I was just in tears. And she said, you have to use mom's name. So that's wonderful. But also, Chris, your mother, it was not your mother who did not want to find you. She wanted to find you. That's what I found out. Yes. 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 Yep. I found that out from her husband. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was my grandmother that kept a a lid on all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least you know that. Yeah. And that has to be a tremendous gift in itself. Oh, it completely it changed my whole relationship to my birthdays. I mean, now birthdays are a big bash. You know, like, <laughs> you better celebrate my birthday. Um, because now I know, you know, 
how, what her state was, what she was thinking, that she was thinking about me. And it, it really, you know, shifted so much. And the family, the, my, my, they are half siblings and their welcoming, their embrace was, um, pretty mind blowing actually. Uh, and, you know, I'm in touch with a lot of them still. So it was quite the gift. But what a great mystery for them as well. Yes. And that they get to be a part of that. You yes. Know? Yes. You know? So, all right. So now tell us, um, as we come to a, a closing here about your Cherokee <laughs> ancestry and also, uh, just anything else that you want to say. I, for me, what you have written about is all the, all the pieces of the people. Mm. And their and their journey as well, even without even knowing them, you know that you could get into you know into their what they must have been thinking or hoping for or uh, that kind of heartbreak and all of that. And you just you just live every single person that you've encountered, especially <laughs> your family. So so now, how do you find out about your? You're Native American. You're yeah. Cherokee. Oh, that's a, that's a funny story. So nobody really knew in the immediate family. They had heard rumors. Um, one brother thought maybe Blackfeet. Nobody really knew. And um, so my my one sister was like, you know, Mom had cousins that she was really close to, and they used to go to the Kentucky, the farmstead where Mom was originally um, born and lived until she moved to New Jersey as a child. Um, and she used to visit every summer during, um, you know, when she had the break from school. And um, sis said, you know, we, sh- we need to find the cousins because, A, the cousins might know who your birth father is. That, be- that became the next mystery. You know, like, okay, right. who's my dad? Right. And, um, you know, so, but nobody knew where the cousins were or any address. Well, of course, out of the blue, you know, and I, I am now convinced that my mother, who was on the other side at this point, was just, you know, sending dreams and giving us clues. Um, a cousin reached out to my sister and said, there's a big family reunion happening in Kentucky and the cousins are going to be there. Any chance you could be there? So we were like, are you kidding me? This is what we were trying to, trying yes, to find. Yes. So um, we did a road trip. I went to Kentucky with my sister and we met my mom's um, cousins who were, a couple of them were best friends. Also met um, an aunt, my mom's, one of my mom's aunts, one of the only ones. And um, we're sitting in Cracker Barrel because it was the only restaurant in um, the area <laughs> where the reunion was. And we're asking these cousins, you know, like what they knew. And, and they're, of course, wanting to know who the heck am I and right. how did I come to be? So right. that was we were there for hours. And um, and so I, I asked the question. I said, you know, we've heard a little bit like there's native ancestry. I've always had this real affinity. Do you guys know anything? And one of the the cousins knew everything, and she said, "Well, you know, there's a book." We're like, "What do you mean there's a book? Like a pamphlet?" She's like, "No, like there's a book about us." So I went from not knowing my ancestry or knowing anything about my background, you know, being that eight in eighth grade and not knowing anything, to knowing that our ancestors um, started in Germany, Switzerland area, and came to the United States in uh, something like. Uh, Seven, early 1700s. I even know the name of the boat. So that's pretty wild. <laughs> oh um, but that's when I found out Cherokee. So the cousin knew. And um, it it was incredible to know that, you know, the, the nurture nature piece and that, that, you know, even, you know, not knowing what my roots were, I was so connected to my roots. You know, I, I lived in Maine at the time, a seacoast community. You would think the house would look like that. No, the house is full of Native American art (laughs) that I was collecting because that just felt comfortable to me. Um, So that was just an incredible reminder. And so, Chris, you're known as the Kachina woman now, right? You live in Cornville, you know, next to Sedona here. Yep. Um, you are cancer free. Yes. You have all of your pieces. I do. <laughs> all of the pieces in multiple ways. Yes. And, and I think, you know, the message that I'd love to, to give everyone is, um, you know, finding the missing piece really shares the resources I use to embrace the idea that healing is not about fixing anything that's broken. And I think for, a lot of people that are adopted and a lot of people in general, there's this sense of something's wrong with us and that we're broken. And for me, it was about creating space for stillness, right? Unlocking my inner guidance system and truly having self-compassion and self-acceptance for myself. 
and ultimately remembering the wholeness. That is me, and that is you. And that really is where this journey has brought me. And thank you so much for this journey. You have got to read the book. And you can reach uh, Chris by kachinawoman.com, K-A-C-H-I-N-A, woman, kachinawoman.com, and find the rest of her there and, and her remarkable, fantastic, sacred, divine journey. Mm. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mr. Grace signing off again from West Sedona. Thank you. Thank you.